Thank you all for coming back out this evening. We've got uh, one more hour in front of us. So went through all the list of topics in my head that we, could, that we could talk about and decided that we are going to discuss the tabernacle, but the tabernacle, tabernacle slash temple. But that, that subject as it's related to Genesis 1 and 2 as well as to Revelation 21 and 22. So basically, we're just going to talk about the whole Bible in the next hour. That's all. We'll cover it all. Don't worry. So what, what I want to convince you of is this. I'll tell you up front what I want to convince you of, and then I'll try and convince you of it. What I want to convince you of is that Genesis 1, and then you know, bleeding over into Genesis 2, because they divided the chapters in the wrong place. But <laughs> anyway, the creation story is really a, a depiction of God acting like a a divine priest presiding over a cosmic liturgy, okay? So I think the creation account is basically God as a priest who's presiding over this cosmic liturgy because there are various elements within the creation account which mirror accounts that describe the making of the tabernacle. So world-making and tabernacle-making or world-creating and tabernacle creating are doppelgangers. They are, they are lookalikes. And not just on accident, they were actually designed to be this way. So creation is described as sort of a temple. And then when you get to the creation of, or the making of the tabernacle, it is described in a way that mirrors Genesis 1 and 2. So what you have in the tabernacle is a cosmos in miniature. All right, you with me so far? Okay. And then what you have within the elements of the tabernacle or the temple is a looking forward to what Christ is going to accomplish then in his salvation, and then also looking forward to what's going to happen in Revelation 21 and 22, when everything wraps up with the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven and everything being basically like one vast cosmic temple in a new creation filled full of people who are like the high priest to bear the name of God across their brow. You get all that? Okay. Anyone really, seriously, has anyone kind of heard creation tabernacle described this way? A little bit? Okay, cool. It's, a, it's one of my favorite topics because I don't think it's, it's all that well known. And when you begin to kind of put these things together, it really does open up the scriptures in a way that was amazing for me and that I hope will be amazing for you as well. Okay, so first of all, when we look at Genesis 1 and 2, when you read through these opening verses, this opening account, it's really a lot like reading through something from the book of Leviticus or something from the latter parts of the book of Exodus where you have the tabernacle described. Everything, of course, is extremely orderly, very well organized, step by step by step, like you're kind of going through a liturgy. This happened, and this happened, this came together, this was separated, he did this, he did that. You know that basically the way that, that creation is set up is on days one, two, and three, God creates the spaces that on days four, five, and six, he fills with specific things, right? That's the way that the creation account is structured. So he creates the heavens, and then on, on day one, 
And then on day four, he creates the lights that fill the heavens. So you kind of have this back and forth between the, the days of creation. So everything is very well organized. You also have uh, units of seven. Of course, you have seven days, right? You have the six days, and then you have this, the Sabbath day, which is the, the seventh day. The uh, opening verse of the scriptures is seven words, but a sheep, but Elohim, so on and so forth. So it's seven Hebrew words. You have a definite order and structure that's based upon sevens that you have in the creation account. We're going to come back to that. You also have very interesting language that's used. So if I say to you, grill, you're probably going to associate that verb with cooking, right? Yeah. Or if I say home run, of course, you can associate that word with baseball. We hear certain words, and all of a sudden, some association comes up with it, right? Hebrew is no different. There are certain words that are used that will automatically orient someone who knows Hebrew to a certain kind of context. One of those words is badal. And if you open up Genesis 1 in English or in Hebrew, either way, you'll notice that one of the things that God begins to do multiple times is he badals. To badal is to separate, to divide. So for instance, verse 6, verse 4, God saw that the light was good and God badaled. He separated the light from the darkness. Skip on down to verse 6. Then God said, let there be expanse in the midst of the waters and let it badal, let it separate the waters from the waters. Four or five times in Genesis 1, you have God engaging in this act of separation. He's splitting things up. He's organizing them. He's separating, making a division. It just so happens that that particular verb for separate is used a multiplicity of times in accounts that describe what God is doing at the tabernacle or the work of the priest who serve at the tabernacle. So one of the main duties of the priest is they are to, most English translations will say, make a distinction between the clean and the unclean, the holy and the unholy. That verb for make a distinction is badal. They are to separate, clearly distinguish this. The most holy place, the holy of holies, was separated from the holy place by a curtain. And the verb that's used to describe this separation is once more badal. So God is creating these divisions in creation, and he's also creating these divisions in the making of the tabernacle. Then one other word that has all of these kind of tabernacle connections to it is when he describes the purpose of the lights. So if you look in... Where are we at here? Verse 14. God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Now, one of the words that's used there to describe these, these times is moed. Moed means either a specific time or a specific place. And it is... It is so connected with the tabernacle that I think any Israelite who heard the word moed would automatically think tent, tabernacle, because the, the tabernacle was called the tent of moed, the tent of meeting. It was a place where God said, here's where I'm going to meet with you. Well, the 
the creation of the heavenly lights was there for the designation of meeting times of God with his people. So they followed a certain calendar that was determined by the lunar cycle, and those, those designations, those time designations, were called Moedim, the plural of Moed. My point is that when you read through the creation account, you have language in there that is priestly in nature, that is tabernacle in nature, all right? So when you're reading through what God does at creation, you're reading through something that sounds a whole lot like something that belongs maybe in the book of Leviticus or something. It's very priestly. Then if you look ahead to the book of Exodus and you have the story of the making of the tabernacle, all of a sudden you have all this language from Genesis 1 and 2 that is echoed in the making of the tabernacle. All right? So for one, when Moses receives the instructions for making the tabernacle, he receives these instructions over a period of six different speeches. And the seventh speech about the making of the tabernacle is about, any guesses? The Sabbath. Yeah. So you, you go through all these speeches about the tabernacle, and then you get to the seventh one, the last one, and it's all about the celebration of the Sabbath, which, of course, is exactly the way that Genesis 1 and 2 are structured. Six days and then the Sabbath. And then listen to these. I'll just kind of... I'll briefly read through these, just to kind of let you hear the connections here. So Genesis 1, 31, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Exodus 39, Moses saw, same Hebrew verb, all the work, and behold, they had done it. God sees, Moses sees. They're kind of overseeing the work. Same language is used in both these contexts. Genesis 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed. Kalah in Hebrew for completed. Exodus 39. Thus all the work of the tent of meeting was completed. Kalah. Same Hebrew word. So the heavens and the earth are completed. Genesis chapter 2. Exodus 39. The tent of meeting was completed. Genesis 2, 2, on the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. And then Exodus 40, the making of the tabernacle, thus Moses completed the work. You hear in all these connections between Genesis and Exodus. One more, Genesis 2, 3. So God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because he rested from all his work which God had created and made. So blessed and work. You skip to Exodus 39. Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. So Moses blessed them. Blessed work in, Exodus, in Genesis 2, and then blessed work in, in uh, Exodus 39, 43. So you kind of put all of this together, and what are you looking at? Well, I would argue this is, what, this is the way this goes. Moses is describing the work of building the tabernacle, and he's writing about the work of building the world, so world building and tabernacle building. He's describing both of these in such a way that he expects you to read these in tandem so that you can't really understand creation unless you understand it from the perspective of the tabernacle. 
And you can't really understand the tabernacle unless you're reading it from the perspective of creation. Okay? Why? What's the big deal? Well, for one, to start with creation, what is God up to there? What God wants us to, the way that God wants us to view creation is that God made the world as this vast temple in which his glory would be made known. This is the place where God was going to reveal his glory. So the, the whole creation was made to be this vast temple of God. Now we're going to get to Eden in just a minute, but just to envision all of creation as, as the temple of God. And then, I think much more importantly, when you get to the tabernacle, the tabernacle was meant to be a cosmos in miniature, a world in miniature. What purpose did that serve? Well, think of when the tabernacle was, was made. So we have creation, Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 3, everything comes apart, right? Genesis 4, Cain and Abel, everything comes more apart. Genesis 6 you can, through 9, you got the flood, everything really comes apart then. And then you skip forward, you get to the book of Exodus. God has just redeemed his people from slavery. He's got them in the wilderness. And he has made a covenant with them. He's about to bring them into the promised land. But, but first, first he wants them to build a tabernacle. He wants them to build a tabernacle, first of all, so he can live with them, right? He wants to be in the midst of his people. He, he doesn't choose some mountaintop aloof from his people where they can't really dwell with him. Where, he, where does he want to dwell? He wants to be like right in the middle of the camp. That's exactly where God wants to be. He doesn't want to be out on the outskirts. He doesn't want to be in a mountaintop. He says, I want to dwell smack dab in the middle of all the Israelites. That's where I want to be, surrounded by my people. And he wants him to be able to come to a place that is a mirror of the way that he wants the world to be once again. So when people come to the tabernacle, or later the temple, God wants them to come to a place where in this world, where so much is wrong, here is one specific place where things are right, or where things are as, as right as they can be in a fallen world. So what do you, why do you come to the tabernacle? Come to the tabernacle because, first of all, that's where God is, right? Everybody, every Israelite knew where God's address. They could point to God's house. That's exactly where God was. And so God wants them to come to his house, to come to this specific place because they're unclean, or they're guilty, or they're full of shame, or whatever's wrong with them, they want to be made right. So they come to his house because that's where he makes them right. That's where he meets with his people. He meets with, as it were, these Adams and Eves that are filled full of all the troubles that humanity faces, and God brings him to his tabernacle so that by means of sacrifice, by means of blessing, he can cleanse them, he can bless them, he can sanctify them, he can make them the way he wants them to be. So the way I like to think about the tabernacle is that in a world where everything had gone wrong, here was one place where God was making things right. And it was a very specific place, a very physical place, full of all sorts of physicality, like sacrifices and the burning of incense 
and the work of priests and everything that took place there at the tabernacle. Okay? Everybody with me? Okay. So let's go back for just a second. Go back to the creation account. Let's talk about Adam and Eve for a minute. So if you look at the story of the creation of Adam and Eve, let's see, let me find my, uh, my reference here. Verse 15. So this is Genesis 2:15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to do what to it? What was he supposed to do in the garden? What are your, if you're looking at a translation, which none of you are looking at a translation. Yeah, you've got, you've got your job. So what is, what is Genesis, what does Genesis 2, 15 say? There's two things they're supposed to do. Cultivate and keep. Anybody have something different? Work and take care of it. Yeah, okay. So the, the two words that are used there in Hebrew are the first one that's translated like cultivate or work, I guess, is, uh, is avad. Avad's a pretty common word. We get the, the noun form of that would be ebed, which is the word for servant, okay? So when you avad, you serve, you, you work. So by itself, it's not an uncommon word. It's kind of a generic word, right? So he's to avad the garden. He's to, he's to work the garden, cultivate the garden. And then the next word for keep is shamar. Uh, a shomer is a guard. So a sh- when you shamar, you guard something. You, you watch over it. You, you take care of it like a guard would watch over it, take care of something. Again, not that, in fact, shamar is a very common, very common word. But here is something that's uncommon. When you put avad and shamar together, so work and guard, serve and guard, it just so happens that almost every time that those two verbs are used in conjunction one with another, it's in the context where the priests and the Levites are working and guarding the tabernacle. So by themselves, they don't mean a whole lot. But you put these two words together, and over and over and over, you're looking at context where they are to keep priests and Levites in particular. Priests and Levites are to, are to keep the commandments of the Lord their God, to then also guard or watch over or protect his tabernacle, his sanctuary. So when you see in Genesis chapter 2 that Adam is placed into the garden to avad and shamar it, to work it, to serve it, and to keep it, to guard it, the only conclusion you can come to, based upon that evidence, is that Adam is to serve in the garden, to protect the garden as a priest would. Which means that the Garden of Eden in particular is to be envisioned as a sanctuary, as really what we would call the the first tabernacle or the first temple. This is where Adam, as a priest, would do his duty. Now think back to the whole story. We can kind of understand how he's to serve. He's to serve by actually working in Eden, right? But he's also to serve by keeping the commandment of the Lord, right? So a lot of times when that word is used in connection with a priest or Levite, they are to 
to serve in the sense of they are to serve in the keeping of the Lord's commands. Now, what command was given to Adam? Cultivate, subdue the earth. And there was a very specific, right after this, in fact, he puts him there to, uh, to cultivate it or to serve it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded man, saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden you shall not eat. And if you do, you will surely die. So right after God gives Adam this very priestly vocation, he gives him a divine word that he is to serve. This is what he is given to, to keep. All right, bear that in mind. Adam is also told he is to shamar the garden, protect the garden, defend the garden. He's to be a guard at the Garden of Eden. Well, it's a perfect world. What in the world would he be guarding it from, right? What could, go, what, what could possibly go wrong? You read a little bit further, and all of a sudden, there's this serpent in the Garden of Eden who's spewing out lies. And pretty soon, what happens? The very command that the Lord gave Adam, the priest, to keep, he breaks. So I would argue that what's going on in the creation account, not what's going on in Genesis 2 and 3, is that Adam is given a priestly duty, and he's given a word to keep, and he's given a garden to protect. And he fails in both regards. He fails to protect the garden because he lets in what ends up being an unclean, lying creature who comes in to bring the, the venom of lies and death and disorder into the world. And in conjunction with that, he doesn't keep the priestly command that was given to him not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as a result, not only are Adam and Eve expelled from the garden, but who takes their place? Go to the very end of chapter 3. So God, this is chapter 3, verse 24. So God drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to Shamar, to guard the way to the tree of life. So the very word, the word for guard is the same word that we have described as given to Adam as one of his duties. He is to, he is to work, to serve, and he is to guard. So the cherubim take the place of Adam. He did not guard the garden like he was commissioned to do. And so he is expelled, and the cherubim take his place to guard the way to the tree of life. So where Adam failed, the cherubim are placed to succeed, to follow the instructions of the Lord. So you have Adam and Eve, I would argue both of them, Adam and Eve in a, in a, in a priestly kind of calling, priestly vocation, and that, in, 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 a, in, a, in a garden that's really supposed to be the first sanctuary. And that means that when the first sanctuary, the tabernacle is made, the priests and the Levites are there, to do what? They are there as replacement Adams and Eves. So I, I used to say, and I think this is not the best way to say this, I used to say that Adam was like a priest. But now I would say it more specifically this way. The priests were like 
Adam. So it wasn't so much that, that Adam was, as it were, sort of emulating those who would be in the future as much as those in the future, the priest, were emulating the way that Adam should have been. So maybe it's more specific to say that it wasn't so much that Adam was a priest as the priests were Adams in this new garden-like sanctuary. Everybody with me so far? Okay, we're not done yet because I, I just said it was a garden-like sanctuary. Well, how so? I mean, did it kind of look like this room? No. I think that when you walked into the tabernacle, it probably felt a whole lot like you were kind of walking into an Israelite version of an Eastern Orthodox church because you had iconography all over the place. Let's just kind of run through a few of these. Let me find it in my notes because I've got it all printed out here. It's a lot easier for me to, to, to run through these. So this is the description, some of the tabernacle and some of the temple. I'll just run through the flora and the fauna that you find in the tabernacle to begin with and then later in the temple. So in the temple, the cedar inside was carved in the shape of gourds and open flowers. On the walls of the temple were engravings of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers. On the two doors leading into the Holy of Holies, there were carved images of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers. The menorah, the menorah, almost, almost all scholarship, and I agree with this, thinks that the menorah was, was supposed to be an icon of the tree of life. It was shaped like a tree. It had the trunk, and it had three branches on each side, of course, with, with the glowing light from them. So just like the tree of life was, as it were, illuminating life, giving life in the garden, so this replica of the tree of life is giving light in the midst of God's holy place. So the menorah is once more like this tree, uh, but not only that, it had, it had bulbs and flowers on its six branches. Right? So you have the tree-like imagery that's there. On the, the two pillars out in front of the temple, on the top of them were 200 pomegranates, and the top was fashioned in the shape of a, of a lily. Okay, so far we don't we really have, we have cherubim, and we have a whole lot of kind of garden imagery, right? But you look at the big bronze sea that was out in front of the temple, this vast water reservoir, and you have a dozen images of oxen that are holding this up, three facing each direction. And then in the temple, you didn't have just like this big bronze sea, which is where the priests would wash their hands and their feet, but you had also these smaller wash basins that were around the outside of the temple that had wheels like chariots. They could move them around. And on these wash, and wash basins were images of lions and oxen and cherubim. You, you, you put all that together, and when you went to the tabernacle, and certainly when you went to the temple, what you were seeing was a garden-like scene. You had images of animals, you had images of plants, you had images of angels. There was iconography all over the place. So you, you might have been in the middle of the desert, for instance, but when you went to the tabernacle, you were entering into a, a garden. You were in... Israel, but when you went up to Mount Zion and then you went into where the temple was at, you were entering into a garden. It wasn't there just so it would look pretty. 
<laughs> the purpose was so that you would, you would visually understand that you're now entering into a different sphere. You're entering into a place that is like paradise. It's like a garden because that's what it was intended to be. It was a new Eden. It was a new paradise where all these Adams were running around as priests engaged in the service of the Lord, and many of them were there as guards. They were shomer. They were a guard who were to shamar, who were to guard the tabernacle from anything unclean entering into it. So throughout Israel's history, beginning with the construction of the tabernacle and continuing with the construction of the temple, God was giving to his people a definitive place where he himself dwelt that was a garden-like atmosphere where people could come in order to, as close as they could in this world, be made right with him once more. Everybody with me? Any questions? Comments? Yes, sir. All the, all the, uh, the cedar and everything you were describing, all that, all, all that was mobile? Like it, it moved along with the camp? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everything was mobile. So the tabernacle was, tabernacle is a real fancy word for tent. That's all it, that's all it is. Uh, it's my favorite Hebrew word, by the way. Ohel is the word for, for tent. So the Ohel Moed, the tent of meeting. And uh, they would, yeah, so it was mobile. So they would take it down, pack it up, and move it. Yeah. And then, you know, it stayed that way, basically told David, David wanted to build a permanent structure for the Lord. And I always like God's response. God's like, tent's been fine with me all, this, all these years. But David's like, no, I live in a house of cedars, so I want God to have a, a permanent house as well. So his son Solomon gets to build it. But it's one of those cases where uh, God kind of, as it were, just acquiesces to the desires of his people and the temple. The temple is built. Any other questions? So everybody with me on the kind of understanding, connection between world, creation, tabernacle, Adam and Eve as priest, priest as Adams and Eves in this world. All right. And I want you to think for a minute. Because I do think this is something that not many people consider. And it's probably because history was just cut short rapidly because Genesis 3 happened soon. The fall happened soon. But let's just pretend it didn't, okay? Let's pretend that for a long time, everything was just fine in the world. What would have been happening with humanity? Okay, so first of all, you kind of you think about the three, what you might think of as the three areas of the world. You have the world, kind of the, the big world, and then you have a place called Eden, Eden is a specific area, but then you have a place within Eden. because So the garden and Eden are not the same thing. So it's the garden of Eden. So it's like you have Louisville of Kentucky. It's a place in Kentucky, but it's not Kentucky. <laughs> so the garden was a specific place in the broader region called Eden. I think... This can't be proved, but I think this is actually supposed to correspond to kind of the structure of the tabernacle. You have the Holy of Holies, and you have the Holy Place, and then you have everything else around that. Probably pattern after you have Eden, you have, you have the garden, you have Eden, and you have the rest of the world. But anyway, back to my 
theoretical uh, scenario. So Adam and Eve are told to do what? There's a very important word that's used there. They are to do what to creation? You said it earlier. They're subdue. They're to subdue the world. This particular word that's used for subdue is, is often used in context where it's, a, it's, a, it's going to require effort, which our word subdue suggests, right? doesn't mean you just go in and everything's, you know, snap your fingers, everything's good. To subdue is going to require effort. In fact, it's used in a lot of other contexts for uh, even, even violence or con a military conquest, something like that. That means that if Adam and Eve and their descendants are to subdue the world, the rest of the world is not what? It's just not quite ready for humanity yet, right? So I think we sometimes picture all of creation, it's just like, you know, everything is just right. You know, Adam and Eve's great-grandkids, they move in, and you know, everything's good. You know, there's nothing really needed to do. No, the work had to be done. The world had to be made habitable for humanity. So Eden was perfect. Eden was just the way that God wanted it to be, especially the garden. But okay, you start having kids, and then they start having kids, and then they start having kids. So theoretically, you have several generations. What's going to happen? You need more land, right? So the, the original plan was for the garden to expand and for Eden to get bigger because they were to subdue the earth. They were to subdue the world. So again, theoretically, what would have happened is that they would have gradually, acre by acre, begun to Edenize the world, to take this space that God had given to them and to expand it more and more and more. So that eventually, again, in our theoretical proposition, the whole world would have become exactly as God intended it for humanity. Of course, that never happened. But that was the goal. That was where everything would have gone. That becomes important because when you think about what God actually did in his grand plan of recreation, that's precisely what that's precisely actually what is happening. What's happening right now is like where we're at and where your church is at or wherever the people of God are gathered at, you're in Eden. You're in that particular space where you're gathered together, and right now it's here, and Sunday it's going to be somewhere else. But wherever you as the people of God are gathered together, what's happening there is God's original plan for creation is being fulfilled. You are expanding his kingdom. You're expanding Eden to the uttermost ends of the earth. You see, you see there's sort of a, there's a centrifugal and a centripetal, and I never can tell which one of those is which. Anyway, there's, a, there's an inward movement and there's an outward movement, right? Centripetal is when you go in, correct? Okay. So there's a, there's a centripetal movement. We saw this in Isaiah chapter 2. All the nations will do what? will stream to Zion. But you also have this centrifugal movement where Jesus says to his disciples, I want you to go to where? I want you to go to Samaria, Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost ends of the earth. So there is a sense in which you've got two things happening at once. Everybody comes in and everybody goes out. Because the coming in part is where God brings people to himself. 
He, he gathers his people together to bless them. But he also sends them out. And that's what's been happening the last 2,000 years. The last 2,000 years, God has been sending people all over the place, Edenizing the world, expanding his kingdom out, in order that wherever the gospel is preached, wherever baptism is given, wherever the Eucharist is celebrated, there you have God's paradise. There you have God's Eden. Their people are being made the way that God wants them to be in Jesus Christ. It's a very cool way, I think, to think about what evangelism and preaching is. So when you're evangelizing, you're Edenizing. When you're preaching the gospel, you're Edenizing. You're taking what God originally wanted and you're making it happen. The Spirit is using you through the proclamation of Jesus Christ to do what God wants to do in, in this world. So that's kind of the big picture. Let's fill in some details. Let's look at one of my favorite stories from the prophet Ezekiel. We haven't looked at this one yet. So if we turn to the latter few chapters of Ezekiel, anyone remember what those chapters are about? I'm sure you all read Ezekiel late at night. Last few chapters in Ezekiel, anybody? Any takers? Going once, twice, no. Last few chapters of Ezekiel are all about a temple vision that Ezekiel has. So beginning at chapter uh, 40, verse 2, Ezekiel says, In the visions of God, he brought me into the land of Israel, and he set me on a very high mountain. We have a mountain again, right? We talked about that earlier in connection with Eden. And on it to the south, there was a structure like a city. So that's Ezekiel 40. Now, when you read through Ezekiel 40, 41, 42, 43, 45, 46, Ezekiel goes on to describe in this vision what he sees is this vast temple that God is going to make in the future. And it doesn't correspond with any known temple that's ever existed. This is an eschatological temple, an end-time temple. It's Isaiah's way of picturing what God's kingdom is going to be like when he establishes that kingdom. All right? Now, the best part of this vision is in chapter 47. Are you familiar with this? Ezekiel 47? Oh, okay, this is great. So, Ezekiel says, Then he brought me back to the door of the house, the house being the temple. Right? And something weird starts to happen. Behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east, because the house faced east. And the water was flowing down from under, from the right side of the house, from the south side of the altar. Okay? So you see what's happening. From underneath, from underneath the temple, this rivulet of water begins to flow. It's not this vast spring that's bubbling up. It's just some water that's coming out. What's going to happen to it? Verse 2. He brought me out by way of the north gate, led me around on the outside to the outer gate, by way of the gate that faces east. And behold, the water was trickling from the south side. Verse 3, he takes him outside, measured a thousand cubits. And how deep is the water in verse 3? Ankle deep. Going to get your shoes soaked. Verse 4, he measured a thousand, led me through the water, 
water reaching to the knees. That's getting deeper. Again, he measured a thousand. He led me through water, water reaching to the loins. So it's hip, it's hip, uh, it's hip length now. Verse five, we have another measure of a thousand, and it was so deep that he couldn't cross it anymore. It was deep enough to swim in. This is kind of strange. So water begins from under the temple, and the farther down it goes, the more it expands, the more it widens, the more it deepens. But where's it going to go? What's its goal? Verse 6. I always love how angels say this. They'll ask a question. Son of man, have you seen this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or they'll is in Revelation where they get asked a question and, and John responds, Sir, you know, if an angel ever asks you a question, remember, that's the response. Sir, you know. <laughs> it's always a safe response. Verse 7. Uh, when I'd returned on the bank of the river were many trees on one side and on the other. So now we've got a river, now we've got trees. Verse 8, these waters go down toward the eastern region. So we have you kind of picture the Holy Land. You've got, you got Jerusalem, and, you, and east of that is the Jordan Valley, down which the, the Jordan River flows. That's where we're going with this. And they go down toward the sea, the sea being what in the Old Testament is called the Salt Sea. We call it today the, the Dead Sea. It's never called the Dead Sea in the Bible. It's called the Salt Sea. And a few other names, but it's, it's the Salt Sea. And it flows into the sea. And then, the best part of this, the waters of the sea do what? Mine says become fresh. Literally in the Hebrew, they are healed. They are rafa. Or... To use an English word, they are desalinated. And have you ever been to the Dead Sea? Okay. You know how much salt is in the Dead Sea, right? You can, does it stink? Is there an odor to it? Or does it just feel strange? Does it feel kind of syrupy? Yeah, yeah. So you can, did you get in the water? I mean, like, or you're just, you can, you don't sink, right? There's so much water, so much salt there that you don't, you don't sink. When the waters from this river touch the Dead Sea, they desalinate it, they raffi it, they, they heal it. Let's finish this out and we're going to talk about that some more. Verse 9 talks about living creatures that were swarming in every place where the river goes. We have fishermen in verse 10. Now, go down to verse 12. By the river on its bank, on one side and on the other, will grow all kinds of trees for food. We, we, we saw these trees earlier. But listen, what, what, what's unique about these trees? Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month. Why? Because their water flows from the sanctuary. And their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. What the heck is all this about? <laughs> what's, what's going on here in Ezekiel? What's this vision supposed to represent? Well, I'll, I'll give you the, the biblical answer in just a minute, like verbatim. But just think about it for a second. If, the most important thing to think about is this. Where does the water come from? Say? Temple. Temple. It comes from the sanctuary. So you could say that differently. Where does the water come from? From 
God, right? It's flowing directly from the presence of God himself. Now, usually, when a river flows into a sea, to use the language of conquest, who wins that battle? The sea, yeah. The sea always conquers the river. In this case, it's the exact opposite. The river conquers the sea. Because the sea does not transform the river into itself. The river transforms the sea into itself. It conquers the sea. So that the sea becomes what the river is, not vice versa. The sea does not salinate the river, but the river heals the sea because it flows from the sanctuary, and in the sanctuary is God himself. And that means that this water carries with it the vivifying power, the healing power of God himself, so that where it flows, it works its true magic. It works its healing. Because there's something special about the water. Well, I suppose you could say that, but the thing that's special about the water is that it bears the power and presence of God with it. Now, Think back to Genesis chapter 2. What flowed out of Eden? A river. A river that was, as it were, bringing the Edenic life to the rest of the world. Now we have another river. Except now it's not flowing from a real garden paradise, but what is it flowing from? The sanctuary. The sanctuary being modeled after the garden of Eden. So you see how everything is fitting together. The Garden of Eden was a sanctuary. The tabernacle slash temple was patterned after Eden. A river flowed out of Eden. A river flows out of the temple. And this river flowing out of the temple is bringing life where it goes. Creation is being renewed. The saltiest body of water is being desalinated. It's being made fresh and whole once more. Now we've got to get to the best part. Turn to the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22. This is the climactic moment of John's revelation. He's already seen the verse 21, a new heaven and a new earth. And he sees the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. And he sees the, the, the new Jerusalem. We have that described in the rest of chapter 21. Chapter 22, and he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from where? From the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street, and on either side of the river was the tree, it didn't say just trees, but the tree of life. And it's bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So John sees what Ezekiel saw. And what John does is he takes this vision of Ezekiel and he expands it out. John doesn't say the river was flowing from the sanctuary. John says it's flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, because he says in a previous chapter, there's no temple in the New Jerusalem because the Lord and the Lamb are the temple. So John sees an actual, I mean, Ezekiel sees an actual sanctuary. John sees the reality. The sanctuary is the Father and the Son. The sanctuary is the Lamb and His Father. The river flows from them. And Ezekiel says the leaves are for healing. And then John says the leaves are for the healing of the nations. 
All peoples are going to be healed by these waters. And then John says that there's, excuse me, Ezekiel says there's trees on either side, but John says the tree of life. So you can't read Revelation 22 without hearing Genesis 1 and 2. And you can't read Revelation 21 and 22 without hearing Ezekiel chapter 47. These are like three, three stops along the whole path of the Bible. Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation 21 and 22, and kind of right in the middle, Ezekiel chapter 47. And all three of these pull together the big biblical story of what's going on. God starts out by building a garden, a world and a garden in it, which is like a sanctuary where he puts his priests. And then later he builds a tabernacle, which is like a new Eden, and he puts these Adam-like priests there to serve. Later then he builds the temple in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. But still, that's not really the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is for there to be no temple. For instead, for the temple to be the Lamb of God and his Father. Just like Jesus says, right? Destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. What was he talking about? The temple of his body. Or as we saw earlier, John 1.14, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So our tabernacle, our temple, our new Eden is Christ himself. And then John kind of pulls all this together and takes us to the ultimate end of things when God will bring about a new creation, new heavens and new earth. He's going to bring the new Jerusalem down from above. And now we're actually going to be in, living in a world that's like one huge temple. A world which is, which is new in every way and which is filled with this life-giving river, with trees that have leaves for healing, that are yielding fruit every year. It's, it's John's way of picturing for us in a Genesis sort of way what this renewal is going, to, is going to look like. And the amazing thing about us as we dwell in the new heavens and the new earth, at this, in this new Jerusalem, is that all of us are going to be like the high priest. Because the high priest wore a headband that had the name of God on it. And what's going to be on our foreheads, John says? The name of God. So each of us will basically have the status of a high priest, which seems pretty cool to me. And we'll be living in this world that's like one huge holy of holies, where everything is just as God intends it to to be. Okay, let me pause there and uh, see if you have some... Comments, yes, sir. Yes. Anytime you have like foreigners being invited into the service of the tabernacle or the temple, Isaiah does the same thing. This is this is the prophetic way of announcing that the gospel isn't just for the Israelites. The gospel is for is for everyone. And I think Jesus cleansing the temple was a sign of that. Him cleansing the temple, it's It would take a little bit longer to explain. We'd have to look at some other prophetic texts. But part of what he's doing there is he's tearing down the structure. He's tearing down this place that was restrictive only for certain kinds of people because he was opening up the way for all to come in. And that's certainly what's happening when the temple veil is rent in two. both, Both directions are affected by that. So when the temple veil is torn in two, God comes out and people come in. There's this coming out of God 
to the world and the coming of the world to God. There's no longer this barrier that exists where only the high priest can go in. And you have the courts of the temple where you have the court of the Gentiles. You can only go so far. Then the court of the Jewish women, then the court of the Jewish men, and the court of the priest. All those walls, all those barriers are destroyed, symbolized by the tearing of the veil in two. And Hebrews, I mean, Hebrews is all about this, right? So with, with confidence, we can enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Yes, sir. Oh, yeah, I'm glad, you, I'm glad you asked that. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad that you asked that. Yeah. Oh, yes, so the question is, you go to Revelation 21, opening, opening part of Revelation 21, it says the you know, new heavens and the new earth are, are, are created, and, but there's one thing that there's no longer there, and it says there's no longer any sea. Okay, well, so you don't have a sea, but you definitely have a river. The reason you don't have seas in the new creation is because in the old creation, especially in the Hebrew mind, the sea was the emblem of chaos and confusion and disorder. That's what Jonah is all about. You know, when, the, when the, their sailors are on the sea and everything is, is topsy-turvy and the storm is there, anytime you have the crashing of waves or the roaring of the seas in the Old Testament, this is the image of the tumult of the nations, of the goyim. So the removal of the sea is basically saying there's a removal of all of this, all these emblems of chaos from the old creation where everything is going to be right again. Maybe there will be some great lakes, though. When do we need some great lakes? No seas, but some great lakes. But I do like the contrast because there's no longer any sea. Revelation 21, get to Revelation 22, there is a river. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, as Psalm 46 puts it. Yes, sir. I think there's a good argument for that. Yeah, so the, the bronze sea or the bronze labor, is, is, that, is that symptomatic, sy symbolic of the fact that the sea in its chaos and confusion are, are contained? I think a good argument can be made for that because when you think sea and you think of all of this negative imagery, and here it's held in check. It is, as it were, an emblem within the temple itself that God has brought this chaos into into order, yeah. By the way, there's a, there's a, I, I cover this in my devotional. There's a, there's a cool little play on words there. When you have the temple dedicated, you have a description of how much water the, the bronze sea will hold, will contain. And then in the next chapter, you have that same word that's used where, where Solomon says that heaven and earth cannot contain you. So it's kind of like, yeah, we can, we can like measure, we can weigh how much Water goes in here. We can measure how much water goes in here, but we, we can't measure you. You cannot, cannot be contained. Anything else about, about this? Or anything else as far as that goes? We're toward the end of our time. Absolutely, yeah. When you think about Ezekiel's river, in fact, when you think about Eden's river, you know, the, all these rivers that are flowing from this holy place, but especially Ezekiel's river, flowing from the presence of God, and then this river, the water of life, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and it gives life, and it gives, it gives cleansing. I connect it to, I, I, this is the way my mind works, I can't help but connect it with the spear thrust through the side of our Lord, and out comes, comes blood and water. I think all of these are, are baptismal images for us, but especially the river, you know. Remember the old, what's the old spiritual? 
Shall, shall we gather at the river? I, I grew up as a Baptist singing that, the beautiful, the beautiful river. Shall we gather at the river? That flows from the throne of God. It's a great baptismal image because that's really what happens. Water that's coming from God himself, from Christ himself, washes us, makes us alive, and brings us into the new creation that's the kingdom of God. I love all of this material because I, I, I like the way that it kind of pulls the whole story together. When you begin with the, the tabernacle garden in, in Eden, you end with this lamb tabernacle in Revelation, and everything in between and how it kind of all fits together into this beautiful picture of, of salvation that is everything from Eden to the New Jerusalem. And, and I'll add this too. I like the way it portrays our vocation. I like to think of myself as a priest, a priest in the sense that I'm the one who has been baptized, called by God, so that in my sphere of, of activity and the vocations in which I am engaged, I'm engaging them as a priest so that what I do, whether it's as a husband or father or writer or neighbor, whatever I'm doing, it's a priestly activity. Because I don't, I don't think that there's anything that's secular about the life of the Christian. Everything that we do is suffused with the sacred. It might seem very common and ordinary to us, but not in the eyes of God. If we've died and our life is no longer ours, but Christ, if he's living and working through us, then everything that we do is, is sacred in, in that way, a priestly activity. Okay. Anybody else? We are at our time. One minute early. Thank you all so much for being here. Thanks for your questions, for your attention. Thanks for being such a wonderful host to Stacy and me. We really enjoyed our time here, and hopefully we'll be able to come back again with you. So thanks for, thanks for having us.